a high school teacher, uh, probably get in trouble if he did it today, but he got his class together. And he said, I want to raise the question, let you guys see if you can answer it. And the question was this, a computer, is it of the male gender or the feminine gender? And he divided the class into the boys and the girls and said, you got like 15 minutes to come up with your answer and your rationale for your answer. And so he let the girls go first and they were of one mind that computers are clearly of the male gender. And here's why. Uh, Number one, to get their attention, you have to turn them on. Two, they have a lot of data, but they are usually clueless. And I'm deeply offended by number three. You realize that when you get one, if you had waited a little longer, you could have gotten a better model. (laughs) So they said that the computers are male. But the boys came back and said, oh, no, 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 no. Clearly a computer is of the female gender. After all, number one, once purchased, you will spend a great deal of money purchasing accessories. Number two, I like this one, only their creator understands their internal logic. And number three also offends me, but I think it's absolutely true. Your smallest mistake is immediately stored in long-term memory for later retrieval. (laughs) Thus, they argue that they are of the feminine gender. But you know, one of my favorite books of the Bible is the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon, I think, makes it very clear that God is a big fan of marriage. He's a big fan of intimacy in marriage, but also that the Bible recognizes that we are different. And because we are different, there are some significant challenges that we face. So if you would, and I hardly ever do a one verse study, but I'm going to do that in our last session this morning. Turn with me to the Song of Solomon, chapter two, and just look at verse 15. Song of Solomon, chapter two and verse 15. Now, what I wanna do is read that single verse in a number of different translations just so that you get the gist of it because my argument is this, John Gray is wrong. Men are not from Mars and women are not from Venus. Men are from earth and women are from earth. And in marriage, we have to learn to deal with it. Yes, we now live in the same house We now sleep in the same bed. We try to navigate the same closets and we especially try to navigate the same bathroom. And by the way, I don't know who it was that came up with the two sink bathroom, but that guy was, our gal was an absolute genius. They have saved millions of marriages. There's only one thing that that person did not do that they should have done, and that is they should mark the counter with a line right down the middle and have it where it says her side and the other says his side because maybe your mate honors that, mine doesn't. Uh, My wife thinks the whole counter is hers. And so I will come in sometimes and there's her curling. And those things are dangerous, by the way. Curling irons, you can flat burn. Well, you already know that, but I didn't know it. But you, I mean, you like burn a, a welt in your arm or something. So there's her curling iron, not just on my side, but on the left side of my sink. And I will just simply say, uh, your curling iron's over here. And she just says, yes. And I say, okay. Okay. 
and we just let it go. I mean, could you imagine reading in the paper tomorrow that seminary president and wife get divorced over location of curling iron in bathroom? You say, well, that'd be about the dumbest thing. Yes, but we have knockdown dragouts over dumb stuff like that. So what does Song of Solomon say in chapter two in verse 15? Well, in the ESV, it says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom, all right? Eugene Peterson, who just went to heaven, by the way, who wrote the message. You must protect me from the foxes, foxes on the prowl, foxes who would like nothing better than to get into our flowering garden. Uh, the New Living Translation. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes before they ruin the vineyard of love for the grapevines are blossoming. And then actually my favorite is in the New King James Version. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines for our vines have tender grapes. Now, what is Solomon doing? Solomon is drawing an analogy with a grape vineyard. And he is saying that is what your marriage is like. A vineyard, first of all, has to be planted. Secondly, it has to be tilled and it has to be refined. And it has to be uh, tended to and it has to be protected. And it was true in ancient Israel and it's true in modern day Israel. Foxes, for whatever reason, are fond of grapes. Now, I am not an expert in foxology, but I do know this. They are small, they are fast, they are sneaky, and they come out almost always at night. And so what happens is, and what happened in ancient Israel, if you did not protect the vineyard, little foxes would get in, they would eat the grapes, you'd come back later to harvest the grapes and you would discover they're gone. Not because something big got in there and destroyed the vineyard, but something very small that you did not even know was there, little foxes. And it's a great analogy because most marriages that do get in trouble, get in trouble, not over the big things, but the little things. So what I wanna do in your booklet, turn over to page, make sure you're on page 14, and I'm gonna walk you through what I call some of the more common little foxes that can slip into our vineyard and do their great devastation. Now, the first one actually is on a big scale, but in our day and age, it's not something that we can ignore. So number one, the fox of gender confusion and abuse. A marriage will get in trouble when God's role for the husband and the wife is either reversed on the one hand or abused on the other. So let me be very clear. God made men to be men, husbands, and fathers, and no one is good at being a husband and a father as is a man. God made women to be women, wives and mothers. And no one is as good at being a wife and a mother as is a woman. But if those roles get reversed, your marriage can get in trouble. Furthermore, if those roles get abused, I think we've been clear so far today that God calls men to a leadership assignment in the home. But guys, 
The model is very important. God has not called you to be a CEO of your little business. He's not called you to be a frustrated drill sergeant or a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. That is not the model for leadership that you find in the Bible. God calls us to be servant leaders. God calls us to be like Jesus, shepherd leaders. And a good shepherd is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. But folks, I think we have to be honest today. We live today in a time of massive, massive, massive gender confusion. Men don't know how to be men. Women don't know how to be women. And in many cases, especially men, uh, they have completely had shattered any biblical notion of what it means to be, for example, both a provider and a protector. Uh, Quick question. How many of you know that in Washington, D.C., there is a monument to the men who died on the Titanic? Would you raise your hand that you knew that there is a monument in Washington, D.C., uh, dedicated to the men of the Titanic. And it is like it almost always is at every church when I share this, zero, zero. Well, there is. And it used to have quite a bit of noteworthiness, but it doesn't anymore. And you say, well, how did you find out about this? I was reading in the Weekly Standard, uh, a book review of a book called Being a Man. And uh, Christina Summers wrote a review of this book. And this is what she said. And listen very carefully, it's fascinating. Quote, one of the least visited memorials in Washington is a waterfront statue commemorating the men who died on the Titanic. Now listen to this. 74% of the women passengers survived the April 15th, 1912 calamity while 80% of the men died. And by the way, I did some further research. Almost all the children were saved. 74% of the women were saved. 80% of the men perished. Why? Because the men followed a basic principle. We all know it. Women and children first. The monument is an 18-foot granite male figure with arms outstretched to the side. It was erected by the women of America in 1931 to show their gratitude. The inscription on the monument reads, quote, to the brave men who perished in the wreck of the Titanic, they gave their lives that women and children might be saved. Today, almost no one remembers those men. Women no longer bring flowers to the statue on April the 15th to honor them. Indeed, the idea of male gallantry makes many women nervous, suggesting as it does that women require special protection. It implies the sexes are objectively different. It tells us that some things are best left to men. Gallantry is a virtue that dare not speak its name. Well, brothers and sisters, that may be true in the culture. It ought not to be true in the church. 
we should celebrate that our churches and we should pray that our churches are filled with godly masculine males who know what it means to be a man both created in the image of God and redeemed by Jesus Christ, who gladly takes on the assignment of provider and protector of his family. We should not apologize for it. We should not back up from it. We should not allow the culture to seduce us into thinking wrongly about masculinity, femininity, and what the Bible says. Now, let me be very clear. We need to make sure we get our ideas from the Bible and not the culture regardless. There are some folks out there of the conservative stripe that try to peddle certain ideas about masculinity and being feminine that are, have nothing to do with the Bible. That you can't make a biblical argument. It's simply a cultural preference that is part and partial of a very conservative culture. And I'm a conservative, by the way, in virtually every way. But I always try to be rigorously, rigorously, rigorously biblical and ask the question, well, what does the Bible say it means to be a man? And what does the Bible say it means to be a woman? And where the Bible draws the lines, I'm going to draw the lines. And where the Bible doesn't, I'm not going to. Uh, There are some of my friends who, like me, uh, are committed to a complementarian understanding of the Bible that God calls men to a leadership assignment in the home and in the church, but they will even extend that on out to the government. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. You can't find that in the Bible. I've got some friends in the complementarian world that think it's wrong for a woman ever under any circumstances to give counsel or instruct a man. Well, you can't find that in the Bible. It's not there. And I'm a strong complementarian, but I'm gonna draw the lines where the Bible draws the line and not where the Bible doesn't draw the line. But the Bible is crystal clear. God made men to be men, husbands and fathers. God made women to be women, wives and mothers. And we want to exalt that and, and, and parade that and rejoice in that and celebrate that and pass that on down to our children and our grandchildren in a culture where it's gonna become increasingly difficult. Do you realize that your grandchildren and my grandchildren are gonna grow up in a world where same-sex marriage has just always been? My, my little granddaughters and grandsons, they don't know that there was ever a world where there wasn't an iPad. There was never a world where there wasn't a smartphone. I mean, that's just, that's, they've always been there. Well, they're growing up in a world where same-sex marriage has always been the norm. Where many people are saying that transgenderism is a norm. Certainly bisexuality, that's the cool thing for teenagers now, right now. Oh, I swing both ways. They really don't, but it's the cool thing to say. And we then have to step back and be clear about what the Bible says about gender and sexuality and masculinity and femininity and so on. It's not going to be easy. And, and our tendency is always to compromise. Our tendency is always to give a little ground and we cannot do that. You may disagree with the Bible, but the Bible is crystal clear on those issues. It just is. 
I have more respect for somebody that says, well, that's what the Bible says. And I just think it's wrong. Fine. I, I can respect that. I think you're wrong, but I can understand that. But don't tell me the Bible doesn't say what the Bible very clearly and plainly says in this particular area. All right. I won't spend as much time on the others. So let me move ahead. Number two, the fox of intimacy stagnation. Your marriage will get in trouble when initial sensual love fails to develop into true intimacy. Now, let me just quickly raise the question and answer it. What is the key to killing uh, the little fox of intimacy stagnation? I think the answer is very simple. And it's the last thing we talked about in the last session, best friends. Best friends. I have in my notes written, key, best friends. And if you become best friends, the fox of intimacy stagnation will not get into your vineyard and do its great damage. You see, sensual attraction is enough to get us started. Sensual attraction is not enough to get us to the finish line. The fact of the matter is, everyone in this room, especially you men, why did you marry your wife? You married her in part because she looked good to you and you thought she would be fun to hug and squeeze and play with like for the rest of your life. You go, oh, I didn't think like that. You are a liar. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I married me the ugliest woman I could find who's mean as a snake and can't. No, you didn't. You married someone that you were attracted to, all right? So sensual attraction is a good, it's a God-given thing. It's enough to get you started. It will not get you to the finish line. And so that's why best friends allows that initial sensual attraction to grow so much wider and go so much deeper. And I can just clear it up in this kind of a way. If I say to you all this uh, morning, when I got married, I loved Charlotte. And today I still love Charlotte that would not communicate at all what's in my heart. What I would have to say is this, when we got married, I loved her. But today I really, really, really love her. And I can say to you all, I did not know when I was 21 years old that this kind of love even existed. You can't, I'm not putting you guys that are young down, but you just can't know. You haven't lived long enough. You don't have enough history with one another. You haven't had enough life. And you begin to look back at what God's allowed you to experience and do and how you've worked through things and how you've cried and celebrated and, and brought in new life and buried people you love and you did it all together. And you're like, I just did not know that sharing my life with another person could be like this. And so being best friends will Take that little fox of intimacy stagnation and banish it from your garden. Number three, the fox of poor communication. A marriage will get in trouble when it is not being nourished by regular and genuine communication. When I do premarital counseling, I mentioned this a moment ago, one part, I always talk to the couple about their relationship with Christ. I always talk to them in the first session about becoming best friends. But I also always talk to them about the five big areas that all marriages have to constantly monitor and work on if their marriage is gonna be happy and successful and a blessing. And by the way, no marriage and family counselor or therapist disagrees with this list. We're all of one mind on this. 
The big five are in this order. You might want to jot them down. They're short words. Number one, communication. Number two, finances. Number three, sex. Number four, children. And number five, in-laws. And that's the big five. I'll say one more time. Communication, number one. Finances, number two. Sex, number three. Children, number four. In-laws, number five. And by the way, there is an emerging number six, and that is uh, aging parents. Aging parents. And uh, for some of us, that becomes a real challenge. And you learn uh, that even though you want to help them, they may not let you help them. And even though you see areas where they need your assistance, as my parents said to me, uh, sweetheart, we brought you into this world and we're just fine without your counsel. And I, and I have a PhD. I'm president of a seminary. But in my mom and dad's eyes, I was just still their little boy named Danny. And as my mother developed Alzheimer's in her latter years and my dad was just not capable taking care of her. My sister and I had to make some pretty hard decisions that were pretty painful and didn't go over well. And so that one's beginning to, because we're living longer. Uh, We're living longer. All the Aikens, uh, uh, my dad had eight brothers and sisters. They all died in their 60s and 50s and one died in his 40s because they all had heart and strokes. Well, in this day and age, I realize I don't need to eat fried food. I don't smoke. I don't drink. And I take like three blood pressure medicines and a cholesterol medicine. So I'm a terrified. I really am. I'm terrified. My brain's going to go before my body uh, because they're doing all this stuff to make my body last longer. Well, that ain't necessarily good. So, but that's the way it works. So that one. But anyway, here's the, to get back. If you begin to have difficulty with your in-laws, if you begin to have difficulty with your strategy and agreement on rearing your children, if your intimate life breaks down or never becomes what God intended, or you get into financial difficulty, you mark it down. Communication broke down. Communication broke down. So it's very clear, nothing is more important than that we work very, very hard at being good, both at talking, but also that we work at being good at listening. Now, most of you would not know this name, but I'm curious. Have you ever heard of the name John Gottman? Let me see your hand. John Gottman. One, two, few. John Gottman uh, is an atheist. He's Jewish, but he is a phenomenal researcher in the area of marriage and family. Done a massive amount of, of, of um, empirical observation watching. He had a thing called, they playfully called it the love lab. And they would bring a husband and a wife in, hook them up to all sorts of sensors and then let them talk. And in many cases, let them argue because most of the people he was observing uh, were having difficulties in their marriage. And he got very, very good at predicting whether or not a marriage would last or fail. Uh, and he came up uh, with what he called in one of his books, the four, hor- he's not even a Christian. I don't even know if he knows this in the Bible, but he came up with what he called the four horsemen of the apocalypse that destroy marriages. The four horsemen of the apocalypse that destroy marriages and all four of them relate to communication. You say, what are they? I'll give them to you and write them down. There's a simple one word each. Number one, criticism. Criticism. 
Number two, defensiveness. Defensiveness. Number three, stonewalling. And number four, contempt. The four horsemen of the apocalypse that destroy marriages. Criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, contempt. Criticism. The glass is always half empty for you. You never find anything good about your mate. Or if you do, you never tell him or her. In fact, um, uh, when it comes to the issue of criticism, we tend to use absolute statements, which we should never do. Should never say, you always, you never always do anything. Nobody does that. But you always, or you never. And so you criticize and you harp and you nag and you fuss and you tear down your mate, criticism. Defensiveness, you're never wrong. It's always somebody else's fault. By the way, that may be the most pandemic characteristic of our culture today. Nobody's responsible for anything. If I have a problem, it ain't my fault, it's somebody else's fault. And so when it comes to your marriage, if there's a problem, it's always on your mate, never on you. I actually had a lady call me one time from Florida when I was here at Southeastern the first time, calls me on the phone, says, I'm a filing for divorce tomorrow against my husband. I've already got my lawyer, uh, but I am a Christian and uh, I have a friend that said that I should talk to somebody before I make a decision like this. And she has high respect for you, gave me your phone number. So I'm calling, so here, do something. I mean, that's really how she started. I'm like, we're in a great day. So I said, okay, um, let's just kind of start here. What, what is it that's a problem with your husband and your marriage? Everything. I said, everything, everything. He is a first-class jerk in every way. And I'm like, dude, that gal, you know, everybody does something well. And so I said, well, ma'am, is there like anything he does well? No. I said, nah, come on. And he said, you can be brave when you're on the phone separated by five or 600 miles. So I said, ma'am, come on. The man's got to do something well. And she said, well, you know what? You're right. He does do two things well. I said, great. What are the two things he does well? She said, well, number one, my husband's a doctor. He's a heart surgeon. Very good at it. People come from all over the country for him to do heart surgery. So he's a great heart surgeon. And number two, because of that, he makes a lot of money. In fact, this is what she said, never forget as long as I live. We just moved into a 10,500 square foot home. Now folks, that's a monster house by any imagination or any estimation. We just moved to an, into a 10,500 square foot home, but my husband never comes home and when he does, I can never find him. And I begin to think, are we getting a picture here? And so since I was separate, I could be brave. And I said, well, ma'am, does your husband know you feel this way about him? He sure does. I tell him every chance I get. To which I then said, well, ma'am, I don't want to be ugly, but if I were married to a woman like you, I'd never come home either. And when I did, I'd build a big house and try to hide from you as well. Well, she did not call me blessed, but she said, well, I don't appreciate that. And I said, well, you're the one that has marriage problems, not me. I said, can I ask you another question? And I set the trap for, and almost every person I've ever set this trap for jumps in with all fours. I said, ma'am, would you say that 95% of the problems in your marriage is your husband's fault? She jumped, absolutely 95% of our problems are his fault. I said, okay. Then that means that 5% is whose fault. She got real quiet. I said, ma'am, I can do math. 
And 100%, 95%, 5 95%, 95% on him, 5% then has to be on who? She said, well, I guess it's on me. I said, yeah, I guess you're right. And I said, here's the deal. I can't help your husband. I'm not talking to him. I said, and furthermore, you can't change your husband. Now God can, but you know what, ma'am? You can change you. And so my suggestion to you is, why don't you start working on the 5% that's your fault and let God work with your husband on the 95% that's his fault. And so again, let's just be honest. You can't change your mate, so why are you trying? You can change you and you are not perfect. If you have difficulties in your marriage, you've contributed to it at least in some way on some level. So give attention to yourself and don't be defensive saying, it's never my fault, I was never wrong. In fact, if, you, if, you're, if you're here today and you cannot say the magical words, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Or I am sorry, will you forgive me? You got some serious issues spiritually because sometimes you are wrong. And you should ask for forgiveness. And you did notice that the word but's not in there. I'm sorry, but I was wrong, but no, 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 no. You just need to admit you blew it, ask for forgiveness. Stonewalling, you have a problem in your marriage, you never deal with it. You just continue to work around it. But the worst of all, the most devastating of all is contempt. And John Gottman points out that when contempt enters into a marriage, 99% of the times it ends in divorce. And secondly, contempt does not always involve verbal language. In fact, most of the time, contempt involves body language. Your mate does something or says something and you go, you shake your head and roll your eyes, which in essence says to your mate, you are so worthless. You lack such value. I won't even take the time to fight with you. You see, if somebody comes to me for marriage counseling and they are fighting like a cat and a dog, there's hope. There, there's real hope because they care enough to fight. But if you come in like I had one time, the ice queen, he comes in, he just sits over there kind of passively. She comes in and she is cold and she is harsh. And finally, I try to use shock therapy. And so I said, well, ma'am, I'm just curious. If your husband were to walk out of here today and go out and have an affair, how would you respond to that? And she said, and I quote, I hope he has a good time. It's not surprising they didn't make it because they had gotten to the stage of contempt where they just didn't care. Now, God can still overcome that. But when a marriage gets to that point, it takes almost a resurrection miracle to fix that marriage. Number four, the fox of time ill spent. A marriage will get into trouble when forces or persons outside the marriage encroach on the all-important time the two of you need alone to build and maintain a healthy relationship. I think time, brothers and sisters, is the most valuable commodity that you and I have in this day and age. Everybody in this room can find a way to make more money. You cannot find a way to make more time. And when you spend it over here, you don't get to spend it anywhere else. And I, I have in my notes the phrase, a Jesus-centered calendar. A Jesus-centered calendar. And here's the deal. If you don't take control of your calendar, somebody else will. And it will eat up 
that valuable time that ought to be given to those persons who matter most to you. And you'll look back on life one day and be filled with regrets. When my boys were in high school, they were all four very good athletes, excellent basketball players. Nathan, our oldest twin, played division one basketball for three years. And uh, so when our boys were seniors, the twins, we had two 12th graders. Paul was in the ninth grade, Timothy was in the eighth grade. My wife and I attended 72 basketball games between November the 25th and February the 28th, 72. That's a college season doubled. That's an NBA season minus 10 games and don't count the playoffs. And we saw 95% of all of those games. The only ones we missed were the ones that were at the same time in different places, which meant mama went to one and daddy went to the other. And you say, well, how did you do that? First of all, I harassed the basketball coaches something viciously about getting the schedule. And as soon as the schedule came out, I put down on my calendar every one of those basketball games. I even did this. If I already had a speaking engagement and I found out they had a basketball game, Jeff, I did this. I would call the pastor and I would say, I'm not canceling, but can we reschedule? And here's what blesses me. I never had a pastor turn me down. Never, not one time. I had a number of pastors, older men say to me, I wish I had had enough sense to do what you're doing today. You can always find another date to speak. You cannot find another date to go watch that basketball game because once that game's gone, it's gone and it ain't like never coming back. I still remember vividly in the winter of 2003, Eastern High School, Timothy, my youngest, as a senior, playing in a playoff game in Louisville, Kentucky against Eastern High School, who had a point guard named Rajon Rondo, who played one year at Kentucky, won an NBA championship with Boston, is now out on the West Coast with LeBron, with the Lakers. And they played well, but they lost. And when the buzzer went off, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You just watched the last high school basketball game you will ever watch one of your children play in for the rest of your life. They are all gone. And I cannot do one thing to bring any of those games back. And if you were to say to me this morning, so you're telling us you think it was spiritual for you to cancel a speaking engagement at a church to go watch your kids play basketball, it's exactly what I'm telling you. And I didn't cancel on Sunday, and I'm not gonna chase this one down because I'll make all of you mad at me. Well, yes, I am too. I'm a sports fanatic. Your pastor asked me, would you, would you like to have lunch or dinner with me on Saturday? I said, lunch. And he said, why? I said, because there's like a really important football game at 3.30 between Georgia and Florida. And like, I need to be in front of the TV, like watching that that football game, okay? Uh, I'm a huge Atlanta Braves fan. I know they won 14 division titles and only one World Series, 14 in a row, by the way. One World Series, okay? 
Uh, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, a Charlotte Panther fan. I keep up with all this stuff, okay? All right, so I'm like a really, really big sports fan, but I am not a fan of all these travel leagues. I think some of you've lost your mind. And I went to college to play baseball. My son played division one basketball. I love sports. But when you take your kids out on Sunday to play ball, you're saying to your kids, we'll work Jesus in when it's convenient, but this is more important. You say, well, my kid's a stellar athlete. The odds your kids want to make it to the pros is like one out of a bazillion. I don't care how good they are. But even if they are like really, really good, guess what? The scouts will still recruit them. They don't have to play travel this, travel that, fill up these uh, hotels where I am on Saturday and Sunday playing soccer and basketball and all this stuff. I don't, I don't get it. And we played all those sports, including soccer on Sunday. But you know what I would not do under any circumstances? They never played a soccer game that got in the way with the church and all four of them were the stars. And the coaches who many of them said they were Christians said, we need your kids to be at the soccer game on Sunday at 10 o'clock. And I said, they won't be there on Sunday at 10 o'clock. They might make the two o'clock game or the three o'clock game or the four o'clock game, but they ain't making the nine, 10 or 11 o'clock game because we're gonna be in church because Jesus matters more than my kids playing baseball, football, basketball, or soccer. And what's gonna happen is they're gonna grow up and they're gonna walk away and you're like, well, what did I do that was wrong? You gave them a convenient cultural Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. That's my free sermon. I'm sorry, I didn't even intend to do that, but I'm just fed up with it. And I, again, am a sport. Hey, how many of you know the World Series went 18 innings last night? Yeah, about 10 of you. Well, I do. Who won, by the way? Dodgers. What was the score? Three to two. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. I got up this morning. I checked my thing, first thing. But then I got over here where my tail belongs to talk to y'all about marriage and family. Okay, so again, you can, you can do the, all of it. If you have a Jesus-centered calendar and you take control of your calendar. I'm a, uh, she's been dead a long time, but I'm a big fan of Irma Bombeck. I think she's been a great theologian. And she just had a wit about her and an insight. And she wrote a book a number of years ago called Family, The Ties That Bind and Gag. What what a Irma Bombeck title. Family, The Ties That Bind and Gag. And at the very beginning of the book, she tells a very touching story about her daddy. So don't you listen and then we're gonna move on and bring our study to a close. One morning, my father did not get up and go to work. He went to the hospital and he died the next day. I hadn't thought that much about him before. He was just someone who left, came home, and seemed glad to see everyone at night. Now just stay with that, I'm gonna come back to it. He opened the jar of pickles when no one else could, and he was the only one in the house who wasn't afraid to go into the basement by himself. He cut himself shaving, but no one kissed it or ever got excited about it. And it was understood that when it rained, he got the car and brought it around to the door. When anyone was sick, my dad would go out and get the prescription filled. And he took lots of pictures, but he was never in them. Whenever I played house, 
The mother doll had a lot to do, but I never knew what to do with the daddy doll. So I had him say, I'm going off to work now. And I would throw him under the bed. The funeral was in our living room. A lot of people came. They brought all kinds of good food and cakes. We'd never had so much company before. Later, I went to my room and I felt under the bed for the daddy doll. When I found him, I dusted him off and I put him on my bed. He never did anything. I didn't know his leaving would hurt so much. And she said something that I've read many times and it seems almost incidental, but it isn't. I hadn't thought that much about him before. He was just someone who left, came home and seemed glad to see everyone at night. And by just doing that, he gave his little girl so much of what she needed from her daddy, the thoughts of time ill-spent. Number five, a marriage will get in trouble when real and personal needs are being met more and more outside the marriage. This I call the thoughts of outside interference. This is the fox that opens the door to this horrible thing called infidelity or adultery. And so I could say a lot about it. And actually in your booklet on the next page, you see something that talks about the 10 warning signs of infidelity. I'll let you look at that on your own. Let me just say this, a couple of years ago, maybe it was last year, uh, our vice president, Mike Pence, got into uh, a lot of trouble because Mike Pence has a rule which later came out is known among ministers as the Billy Graham rule. And that is he made a commitment to Ruth. Mike Pence has made the same commitment to his wife that he will never ever spend time alone with a woman other than his wife. And of course they made fun of Mike Pence. Uh, you, you almost want to laugh at that when you think of all of the infidelity that has ravaged uh, the political world and the uh, show business world and the news world and everything else. Uh, but Billy Graham uh, went to his grave with never even a hint of an accusation of immorality against him. I didn't know the Billy Graham rule when I got married, but I made it anyway. So what do you mean? Well, I, I was pretty dumb when I got married, but I had enough sense to realize that if I was never alone with a woman other than Charlotte, I'd never commit adultery because you don't do it in front of a bunch of people. So I just determined I would never be alone with a woman other than Charlotte. And I've been married to her 40 years and I have honored that commitment all these 40 years. You say, you've never been alone with a woman other than her. Well, my mother, my sister, and my daughter-in-laws and granddaughters, but other than that, nope, no. So you don't like ever take a woman out for breakfast or lunch or dinner? No. You never meet with a woman alone in your office? No. Have a glass in the door, door stays open. If a woman says, I need to talk to you about a personal intimate issue, then I either bring in Charlotte or I bring in a secretary. Uh, I don't counsel women more than twice. You say, why not? Well, first of all, I can tell them everything I know in one meeting because that's all I, I'm not that really that good at it. And if they're too stupid to get it, I'll tell them the same thing again the second time. And then I ain't got nothing else to say. I, I, I'm out of stuff. I mean, I'm out of material. Furthermore, uh, the best person to 
to counsel a woman is what? A woman. I don't understand women. Y'all can fool me. Men don't fool me. I know what's in the evil, wicked, depraved heart of a male. So, you, you know, I already think most of you are liars and, and cheats anyway. So you're kidding me. I'm not kidding you. I don't have a high opinion, opinion of men. Without Jesus, I think you're all mostly scum-sucking dogs. And so, no, I don't have a high opinion of men that don't know the Lord because they live like scum-sucking dogs. All right, so I understand men. So, no, I just made a commitment. And I've been accused of being a scaredy cat. I've been accused of being a Neanderthal I've been accused of being a sexist. I've been accused of needing therapy. I have, even in letters. But I've never in 40 years been accused of adultery. And you see, I have a, I have a, a goal to finish the race having been faithful to my wife. Because here's what I've learned. Infidelity, adultery, man, it costs a lot. It costs a lot. If you're a Christian, you'll bring shame to the name of Jesus. You just will. You'll hurt your church. You'll break the heart of your mate. And listen to me. On some level, you will lose forever the respect of your children. Oh, they love you and hopefully they'll forgive you. I've seen it many times. But they never, ever, ever look at daddy or mama the same way. They never do. So a few moments of carnal, sensual pleasure and all of that, it's just not worth it. And I just don't think you can be too cautious and too careful and too wise in this area. So the Billy Graham rule, yeah, let the culture make fun of it. I think it's a pretty wise guideline for a man or a woman who wants to finish their race having been faithful to their mate. Number six, the fox of fatigue. Your marriage will get in trouble. If the wedding vows are considered conditional, marriage no longer a sacred covenant before God, and divorce begins to be considered as a possible solution to an unhappy situation. Let me play the role of the prophet and the priest, if I could, or the prophet and the pastor. The prophet, okay, let me just be clear. God hates divorce. Malachi 2, God hates divorce. He's never backed up. He's never changed his word. He's never adjusted it. God hates divorce and he hates it for a lot of reasons. One is all the bodies that are strewn everywhere. He just hates it. So my generation, I'm a baby boomer, but we blew it. Good Lord, we, we blew it. We blew it with convenient cultural Christianity and we blew it when it comes to marriage and being faithful and fidelity until death do us part. Our, our generation stunk. I'm watching a younger generation come up and they're different. They're different. Now, they're always better, but in many ways they are. The students that come to Southeastern Seminary, man, they are, they, they are green berets for Jesus. The, the, in fact, I have, I have many times the problem of convincing them their parents are saved. I was talking to somebody recently and I said, well, your parents, well, they go to church every Sunday, but I don't know if they're a Christian or not, uh, Dr. Aiken. They, they, they don't, I mean... They live like our next door neighbors. They don't know the word. They don't live the word. They don't share the word. They don't, they, you know, so they don't, they wonder. But the younger generation, I mean, like they're sold out for Jesus. They want to really make a difference. And secondly, man, they, part of the reasons, not, it, it, part of it, the secular culture is different. Part of it, we, we have a hard time getting young folks to get married. And I'm a big fan of getting married young, but they don't want to get married. They're scared to get married. They're scared to get married. Why? because their parents got a divorce. 
and they don't want that. And they're afraid that they're gonna walk down that path. But they do want to get married and stay married. So what we wanna do is simply as the church say, God's standard is very high. One man, one woman for life till death. God hates divorce. He's a big fan of marriage. He's a big fan of commitment. God wants you to stay in it and find the joy and the blessing that he intended from the very beginning. Now, having said that, let's be the pastor. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. And in a fallen, broken world, sad, tragic, unfortunate things happen like divorce. Every semester when a new class comes in like this, I'll say, I'm just curious, how many of you, either you or your mate, if you're married, your parents got a divorce? It's never less than 40%. Never less than 40%. Sometimes it's almost 50. And so I've got men and women coming to my school. God has called them into the ministry and they have never experienced a healthy, happy marriage. That's true of my wife and me. I grew up in a good home with a good dad and a good mom. My wife grew up in a home with alcoholic parents who divorced when she was seven. She got shipped off to a children's home where she lived from the time she was nine until she was 18. You talk about coming into marriage bruised and, and broken. That was her. But God's been so good and so gracious. So God is in the business of putting Humpty Dumpty back together, okay? So we want to make sure that we hold the line in terms of the high standard but we are kind and loving and gracious and compassionate and we make sure the church is a place where people can come and be healed. We are a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. You've heard that, but it's really true. And that includes being healing for those that have gone through the pain and the sorrow and the hurt of a divorce. Finally, it will end on a happy note, the fox of misunderstanding a marriage will get in trouble if the man and woman fail to understand and appreciate and enjoy just how really different they are from one another. You say, what do you mean a happy note? Well, here's my analogy. When it comes to marriage, the difference thing can be explained in this very simple analogy. Men are dogs and women are cats. And that's the whole thing right there. You get that, you'll have the difference thing figured out. Men are dogs, women are cats. You say, explain that very simply, very quickly. What is required to have a happy dog? Three things and only three things. Number one, you feed him. Number two, you play with him. And number three, you praise him. And if you will do that, you will have a happy dog. My wife and I were blessed for a number of years with what I think was the greatest dog in the history of the world, a great Dane named Samantha. Samantha was about this tall. She weighed 150 pounds, black with four white paws, a white tip on her tail and a white chest. This dog watched TV, by the way. No, this dog watched TV. She loved the animal channel and she would bark at the things and go up and stick her head around the TV that you know, an animal would run off the screen and she thought it would, so she'd get up there and look by, I mean, it was hilarious. And, and she'd bite the TV, scratched our screen all up. And, but you say, how'd you have that? The dog was, how that dog loved, uh, loved, loved being in our family. Why? Because we fed her a lot. We played with her and we praised her. Oh, I'd say, Samantha, 
come here little baby girl. And that dog would climb up, lay out in my lap and I would rub her chest and stomach back, it's about that long, back and forth, her tail like a windshield wiper. And I mean, she would stay in my lap for hours. She wasn't going anywhere because she was being fed, played with and praised. Well, what do you need to do to have a happy husband? Three things and only three things. Feed him, play with him, praise him. Come here, sweetheart. Let me rub you. He'll let you rub his tummy too or something, you know. So just pat him like that. He's good to go. He's good to go. We're, we're, we're so simple, it's shameful. But guys, you're not married to a dog. You're married to a cat. You're, you're standing in the room one day and you look over and there's a cat and that cat's eyeballing you. And you, you look at it and you don't know what to do. And so you just kind of stand there and here it comes. And can you believe it? It starts rubbing up against your leg and, and purring. And so you bend over and you pick it up and hold it and pet it and it keeps purring and you put it down, it runs out of the room and you think, man, that was a nice cat. That, that, that was a sweet cat. But 30 seconds later, the same cat appears in the doorway. You look at it, it looks at you and suddenly, without any provocation, it jumps for your face and tries to claw your eyeballs out. And you're like, what happened? I don't know what happened, but something in that room has radically changed that cat's disposition and now it's completely different. And so guys, you're not married to a dog, you're married to a cat. You say, wow. So what do you do when you're married to a cat? You pray <laughs> and you pray a lot. And you also remind yourself, it's not good that a man is alone. I will make him a helper who will perfectly compliment him. Praise God that your wife is not like you. She sees things you don't see. She feels about things the way you don't feel. And God in his brilliance makes us better together than we would ever be by ourselves. So rather than allow the difference thing to be a frustration, recognize it really is a wonderful, precious gift and a component of a good, healthy, growing, godly, Christ-like marriage. So Father, thank you so much for these precious men and women that have uh, given me this morning to talk to them about this wonderful gift called marriage. I really meant what I said at the very beginning, outside of Jesus, nothing has brought me greater joy and delight than Charlotte, our four sons, and now our daughter-in-laws and our grandkids. Lord, I love being married. I love being a daddy and a granddaddy. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us this great gift. And I recognize, Lord, our marriage would not be what it is today without Jesus. And our family would not be what it is today without Jesus. So thank you, Lord Jesus, that when it comes to marriage, it's not two, it's three. You joining us together. And as we draw closer to you, we cannot help but draw closer to one another. And in the process, find the blessing that you intended from the very beginning. So bless these marriages and families that are represented here today. May you do exceedingly above all that we could ever hope, ask, or pray. And we ask this in the saving name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.